Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by Theodore Joya, the second most famous, as he likes to say, man of that name, related as he will explain to the famous jazz music critic. He has a great essay out at the American Scholar, we will link it on our page, about the relationship between classical music and evil masterminds, villains in modern Hollywood movie making. This will be somewhat unusual for our critic series, but especially delightful since it deals with all this musical stuff that you have seen and heard in dozens of different movies from James Bond down to, well, the TV show Fargo and any number of other places in between over the last 50 years. Somehow, classical music is now for evil people. That's an interesting thing to deal with. So, first of all, congratulations on the essay, and second of all, please introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you so much for that generous introduction. My name is Theodore Joya. I'm a critic writing in uh, San Francisco. And like Titus said, Sicilian families are very unoriginal namers. So all the men in my family are either named Michael or Theodore. So I write under Theodore, though, go under Ted, because my uncle, who's a jazz critic, I think has permanent rights to the name Ted Joya on the Internet. But for myself, I'm very interested in the future of criticism and how we can reimagine the ways that critics engage of our culture in style, format, and tone. And so this essay is uh, one of the works I've used to kind of uh, explore where you can kind of push criticism to be relevant and also entertaining. And I'm currently working on a book of essays framing the evolution of culture through stories of food and art. Oh, and on that front, I'm about to start a website called Fork Tongue, where I'm interviewing food critics on the future of food writing. So stay tuned if you're also interested in food. And I'm delighted to be here today to talk about Hollywood villains. Yep, it'll be more music, less food today, but this sounds like a very interesting project and we will try to throw up links to it. It sounds like fun reading, and of course, we will have to add links for people to see that you're a good writer, first of all, not just a voice on a podcast. And there is this other matter of food criticism and its relationship to art. You deal with body, not just with soul. Yeah, it's like I really think a lot of it that people can find meaning and insight in anything. And the forms change over time. So, you know, in the 19th century, the hot thing to do was to become like, you know, a romantic poet. And there's nothing to stop you from becoming a romantic poet today, right? But it's not where the cultural energy is. And one of the responsibilities of critics is to see the survey, this cultural landscape, look at it and try to write about it in a way that makes that insight alive to people. So that's something I do when I talk about film criticism, music, and food is an area that seems to be rising, but the level of writing has stayed depressingly low, in my opinion. So that's what I'm hoping to dig into. Well, it's America. you got to find your opportunity and take it. <laughs> and this may be it. Well, for now, music and Hollywood. As soon as I read your essay, I thought, where does classical music fit into America? And I was just screening a movie, The Big Sleep by Howard Hawks, an old 46 classic. Beautiful noir. There's Humphrey Bogart with Lauren Bacall. There's all this beautiful cinematography. But there's also a very important score by Max Steiner. This was the 40s. Classical music was really coming into its own in Hollywood. Steiner himself was a student of Mahler. He was a wunderkind. He finished the high school for music in Vienna as a teenager. And then he went into even more serious musical studies before he hopped over the ocean to America and ended up in Hollywood. 
And all of a sudden, American movies with soundtracks got this deeper level of characterization through music. If it's action, if it's drama, if it's dialogue, you will have a composer behind the scenes there trying to help the director along to convey the sentiments, to persuade mm-hmm. you that this is real. Even before the image seizes you, so to speak, the music pulls you along. And ever since the 40s, this aspect of music has simply made movies movies. It's the one that's maybe least noticed, except for the occasional very famous theme. But it's the thing about movies that pulls your heart and soul. Yeah, there are many movies where if you just watch it without the music, it's nothing. It's like unseasoned steak or something. And a lot of music is emotional prescription. It's telling you how to feel. You see that for like the worst Hollywood blockbusters when the soaring music comes on. You're supposed to feel inspired right now. For more interesting directors, they often use music to create interesting juxtapositions and contrasts. But yeah, music, there's, I think, a valid argument to be made that it's the most important element for how an audience connects emotionally with the story uh, on the screen. And it started with a very proud tradition. Many classically trained composers were composing for Hollywood in the golden era. And we can see in, in Marx Brothers comedies, like opera was just part of the lexicon. It was part of the vernacular. You know, in Looney Tunes, they were caricatures of Stokowski and, <laughs> and, and the Barber of Seville. Now, when I'm writing this piece, my editor was worried that people wouldn't know the Barber of Seville. So we had to add like footnotes and all of this. And that's how far we've come. Yeah, that's a very good point, and I think your editors, editors often are, is quite sensitive to the changing moods of the times. But it was the case that classical music was just part of middlebrow America. It was not a class distinction, it was not a distinction for the type of character in a movie either. It was just the sort of thing that happened. You mentioned Stokowski, he famously directed the music for Fantasia. There was Disney, what's more all-American than that? He was one of the conductors of the NBC Symphony Orchestra. Who would believe today that NBC, or Netflix for that matter, or Amazon Prime, would have a symphony orchestra that publishes weekly concertos, weekly recordings of classical music? But there he was. fun is that the current uh, SNL studio was originally built for the NBC Symphony Orchestra. So, you know, that... (laughs) I didn't know that. Wow. And, you know, also, like... Vesti La Juba, the Enrico Caruso um, recording was the first record to sell a million copies. So it really was populist music, something that I think people, it's interesting, a friend of mine who's a conductor said, I don't really think that, you know, the public ever really liked classical music. It was always for rich people. And I'm like, no, no. Yeah, I mean, again, what a change America has gone through. The greatest conductor of the first half of the 20th century, surely Toscanini, He was the guy who led the NBC Symphony Orchestra from the late 30s through the early 50s. This was in certain ways groundbreaking, but immediately widely adapted and adopted in America. It was a great thing for however many millions of people tuned in. It was not a niche taste, it was not a class taste, it was not a foreign or an exotic thing. It was as all-American as things get. Yeah, and then I think things started to shift a little bit in the 50s when we saw emergence of R&B and pop and rock. And that was the moment where I think public taste started to shift. 
yeah, I think that's gotta be the case. Somehow music became way more democratic when all of a sudden we went from Beethoven to, of course, rollover Beethoven and all these very driving, very energetic, very short and musically simplistic songs. And that turned eventually into rock and rock eventually died, which I'm not unhappy about. I didn't like the whole I'm a rock star ideology. So that at least in a way now, as lovers of classical music, we can look down on all this strange transformation since the 50s and think, what was that all about? But at least it was more democratic. All of a sudden, it wasn't just who sold millions of records. It was who filled stadiums, who was Mm -hmm. playing in everybody's house. And it was driven by the evolution of TV and particularly TV advertising. I think that one meaningful way to look at the difference between classical music and other forms is classical music is about these long form compositions where you perceive and enjoy and appreciate the development of themes and contrasts over time while rock and pop, uh, those genres are very short, like you said. And so that actually makes them perfect for advertising and for like short segments on TV. And a lot of like rock songs, honestly, there's like really about 30 great seconds in the song. And those 30 great seconds are awesome. And then the rest is just like, oh, you're just going to repeat it. And so as the TV technology sort of took over everything, it really favored those kind of genres. And that's the beginning where you start to see classical music take on a different role in how it's portrayed in film. Yeah. It used to be that movies learned from romantic classical music, especially that every character should have his motif, like in a Wagner opera, that you should have swells, you should have build-ups, you should have the moments where everything breaks There's the crescendo and the peak, and then it goes down from there. All these sorts of emotional transfers from the music to the action to the audience. But then we went into what we could think of as the modern era, where we have a fairly harsh separation between normal characters and then evil. And evil has a classical soundtrack, doesn't it? Yeah, (laughs) One of the first examples of this is Captain Nemo playing in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea on his giant organ. That's in the 50s. That was like a standalone, but it starts to become a trope in and of itself in the 70s. And I think what really launched it was Kubrick and Clockwork Orange. And as often happens in Hollywood, one person does something with total genius and then everyone else The regurgitation machine, the copycat machine, takes the brilliant moment, like sucks out, drains out all the genius and originality of it, and then sort of spews out a lifeless copycat version of it. And so you start to see as one person did something really memorable then, then all of a sudden it really starts to explode and you see all these different movies using classical music as sort of a shorthand for Sinister. Yeah, I think maybe the place to start with this is something that is still fairly new to us as audiences, but which has also been culturally memorable and very fertile, which is Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, Hannibal Lecter, I think, is definitely the supreme example of this, where he is the uber villain who murders Chewbacca. In Silence of the Lambs, he kills the security guards with a baton listening to the Goldberg variations, and he's almost wielding it like a conductor's baton. And in the second movie, he cooks the FBI agent's brains table side to the same piece. 
And there's some equation there with this malevolent intelligence that's so overdeveloped that it's almost the lost. It equates murder and classical music as almost like two forms of the same aesthetic pleasure. And this is the anti-intellectual strain in America where someone becomes so smart they become evil and they kind of cross that line. And usually these villain characters are contrasted against the everyman who likes, you know, McDonald's and normal things and rock and roll music. And I think that Hannibal Lecter launched this other trend that then became a trope that was copied throughout. And then once something's copied for about 25 years, people don't view it as like it just becomes encoded in your subconscious and the psyche and people don't even question it anymore. Yeah, that's a problem inherent in our forms of popular art. As with Kubrick's also with Silence of the Lambs, Somebody does something for the first time and it hits you in the gut and you go Popeye and you wonder, wow. But then a hundred other people do it and it just becomes the thing done. Are you super smart? Is your IQ too high? You might want to start murdering people to classical music. Why would you do that? You're just an American in a way. There's something wrong with you. (laughs) We're trying to show that this character is evil. How can we do that? We'll put him in a study. We'll put some classical music on. We'll show him reading a Dante or something. I'll just like, <laughs> you know, and it's just checkbox character creation. One of the inspirations for my piece was I looked in all the Bond villains. Since the 70s, there's a surprising number of Bond villains who listen to classical music. And just for our amusement, I'm going to run through a couple of them. So the first one is Moonraker, and that is the kind of Elon Musk character who is sending things on the moon, like lives in this like French palatial chateau. I think it's actually like the palace of one of Louis XVI's finance ministers. And they just show him there just playing Chopin just casually in his chateau when Bond walks in. And just go, oh, Mr. Bond, I presume. Then there's another one in The Spy Who Loved Me. It's the one where the evil sea scientist, whose name I'm forgetting, who has this underground sea fortress called Atlantis that rises out of the ocean, he feeds his minions to sharks while listening to Mozart. So he just flips on Mozart and then watches them get fed to the sharks. And then another... <laughs> Exactly. So it's it's so and he's sitting also at a table that is like a huge palatial table with like 15 courses and it's just him alone surrounded by like Renaissance frescoes. And it's just that's the way they're also interestingly like caricatures of the gay S feet. They're all mysteriously unmarried men who like, oh, Mr. Bond, come in here, like want to play a game of chess, you know, that kind of style where it's never Jaws who's doing, you know, a little cello on the side, right? Like, you know, it's always the head top villain whose villainy is of the mind. Cruelty is a working class job, blue collar job, but like the evil genius. That's exactly right. There's weird suits. There is effete affectations, all sorts of gestures just to show you this is weird. This is odd. There we say queer. Well, that's the Bond movies for you. Yeah, it's a sort of mixture of anti-European sentiment, wealth, and sort of cultural anxiety. The last one I'll give an example of is A View to Kill, which is in 85, and that's where Christopher Walken plays this sort of megalomaniac who he hosts this lavish reception with strolling musicians who wear powdered wigs and 17th century costumes and play Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And that's just like all the tropes of European wealth just kind of mixed together. And it continues to this day. My favorite example, actually, is in a recent one, Quantum of Solace. Spectre also has uh, an assassination to opera. 
but Quantum of Solace, the evil organization, meets at a performance of Tosca to plan overthrowing the Venezuelan government. And it's like, they just decide, like, you know, mid-performance, we'll all just be on headphone planning our world domination. And there's just so many moments like that where the scenery, pomp, and circumstance of classical music has been appropriated to spice up, accentuate the villains of these series. Yeah, that is a defining trait of modern cinema. Exaggerated beauty, exaggerated formalism, incredibly complicated musical structures. You must be evil. It's, mm-hmm. There's no way around it. <laughs> Any musical theme that lasts for more than 10 seconds introduces something evil. I hadn't thought about the question of complexity versus simplicity, but there is a thing, yeah, it's like even characters who talk, except for a couple of eccentric genius types, the sort of Sherlock Holmes figures who are granted immunity. Usually the lead characters speak in simple declarative sentences, like stupid comebacks, like, you know, yippee kaye motherfucker. <laughs> And the other characters, like, are long, you know, the monologuing trope. Yep, right, that's a great difference. The every man will have one-liners, the villain will have an entire monologue that explains and tries to justify and sets up this entirely too complicated structure that, of course, falls apart as a castle of cards by the end of Act 3. Yeah, I guess their complexity has to defeat them. As they make fun of in Austin Powers, like, just shoot the guy. You know, but they never do that. Nope. And there is something in that that, of course, speaks to a deep psychology. It really is the case that very arrogant people want to show off. Everyone knows this. (laughs) It is the case that people who feel that they are on the outsides of society, that they're in some ways marginalized, neglected, do want to triumph, to affirm themselves and to be recognized as winners. There is a temptation, therefore, in arrogance or intelligence to contemn, to underestimate people whose virtues are moral rather than intellectual. And that does point to the structure of our stories. We used to, until recently, want moral virtues in our heroes rather than intellectual virtues. And we tended to consign intellectual virtues to our villains. As you pointed out with the EPKIA motherfucker. It is the villain, it is Hans Gruber, it is this vaguely aristocratic English actor, Alan Rickman, all the stage and Shakespeare stuff who gets the royal treatment, so to speak, that is Beethoven's Ode to Joy when he finally cracks that safe, when he finally (laughs) achieves his moment of greatness. He got it. That guy so smart, he got it. Of course, it doesn't end well for him. (laughs) This is a distinction I was also interested in. I didn't get into this in this particular article. Is There's a distinction between people who are shown visibly enjoying classical music in movies and people who experience it. So a lot of times, the part that is unsettling about the villains is they actually enjoy it. Hannibal Lecter enjoys listening to Bach while murdering the security guards. Alan Rickman enjoys the symphony while breaking into the safe. And often, even when the hero is listening to it, they don't enjoy it in the same way. And so the part that's interesting about it is that they're showing this ability to find pleasure or find joy in these kind of complex things bespeaks a certain greater kind of evil. And this is very anti-intellectual. The best example or one of the examples that I really liked was Gary Oldman's character in Leon the Professional, which is Natalie Portman's first movie, mid-90s. But he plays this sort of coked out, corrupt DEA agent who always imagines he's listening to Beethoven in his head when he's like murdering people. And at one point he goes into this apartment, massacres everyone with a shotgun, except for one person. And he walks in and he's like, you don't like Beethoven, do you? And he's like, oh, you're a Mozart man. 
And then he has this long, amazing conversation about like whether you prefer Mozart or Beethoven sonatas. And there's something about having that conversation at that moment that's so frightening. Is that like what you should be talking about is like the fact that your life is on the line, but instead you're talking about piano sonatas or overtures. That inability to make that mental leap really creates this equation between aesthetic pleasure, intellectual pleasure, and also moral degradation, moral depravity. And I think that that's one of the things that's most trying to unravel in this article. Yeah, I thought you got things exactly right, that at some point we turned around as a culture from saying classical music ennobles us, it makes our heroes deeper, stronger, more believable, more immediately accessible to us. They feel what we feel when we hear these powerful melodies. And we moved away from that to, do you like this stuff? You're evil. (laughs) Because it is unpopular now. It is unusually sophisticated by the standards of popular music. It is no longer even considered, as it were, on a continuum. We no longer think, well, there's all sorts of popular music. And then some composer might take all these dances, all this vulgar music, and make it more sophisticated. But it's still sort of similar, and whether it's all sorts of European dances done again by Bach or Mozart, or it's jazz in America done again by Gershwin. There is a connection between high art and low art. There is the middle segment, there is middle brown. That's weirdly absent from our sentiments, from our experience at the movies, from how we think about these things. It's almost as though somebody starts playing some weirdly classical piano, somebody's going to die. It's going to be bad. Yeah, in a horror movie, there's nothing more frightening than when they start playing like the Moonlight Sonata or something. You're like, oh, shit's going down. Uh, There's a bit of pizzicato string somewhere. (laughs) Prepare for the execution. Some crazy. And what's interesting about that, though, is that you and I, as people who care about the future of classical music, and also I I genuinely believe it is some of the most sophisticated and beautiful accomplishments of like the human creative spirit across the last couple of millennia. It's really a question. How can people engage with it in a way that allows them to experience it at its best? And I think that actually movies can play a big role in that. And you see it in the past. But I think it's important to make a distinction between self-consciously classical music and then invisibly classical music. Consciously classical is when, you know, Hannibal Lecter lets you know that it's Bach that he's listening to. And it's happening within the scene. Or you're at the opera house and you see all of the accoutrements. But then there's other moments when classical music is just experienced as music. So like a good example is Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet theme, which just is shorthand for love. And then people listen to it. They're like, oh, that's great. Oh, they enjoy it. Or another example, we joked about this a little before in our prep session, but it's Gustav Holst's Mars theme, which is just a de facto war theme. And like Hans Zimmer's basically made most of his entire career by just rewriting that one song every time there's a war movie. (laughs) And people love it. People love it. And what's interesting, too, is you see people really gravitate towards soundtracks. Uh, There's an argument to be made that orchestral music's best chance of surviving is most healthy in film music. Because people listen to the folks, Howard Shore, James Newton Howard, who composed the Lord of the Rings or the Harry Potter soundtracks. But the question becomes, how can we use classical music in a way that really enriches the story? How can we pair classical music with Hollywood stories that actually ennoble both? And I, I think it can be done, but I just think you know, it requires a little work. Yeah, I think you're pointing to something very important with the subject of fantasy movies. 
it's okay to use classical music in fantasies because it's so romantic. We don't need to apologize for this. We're back in the 19th century all of a sudden. I just today ran into something on YouTube, a Polish ensemble, orchestra and choir, about 70 pieces doing the 20th anniversary concert of a computer game soundtrack, Heroes of Might and Magic 3. It was super popular 20 years ago. It's a cult phenomenon. And somebody actually put this concert on because it's a vaguely medieval European setting, fantasy, very Tolkien. So you get to throw out everything that we've become used to. And instead, all of a sudden, you can get harpsichord pieces. You can get all sorts of fun, exotic stuff, sort of like the hippies sometimes did in the 60s when they would bring out strange instruments and try to class it up. And I think that even more than movies, computer games, they're so much more addicted to fantasy, will give a whole new life to all the music from the Middle Ages through high romanticism. I know a lot of people really love the Elder Scrolls series. And I have a friend who told me the only time he's cried was saying the music is like the final fantasy final song or something. And I have not made that leap to fantasy, but I think you're right that it is interesting that in the fantasy genres, you're able to engage in these high tropes and appreciate them. And so it's a, a real question, I guess, of how you bring it back to the middle, the movie occurring in the real world hmm, yep. on Earth. That's the part that's trickier because we have gotten so used over the last 40 years or so to the music in movies being the music of the times, being pop music, being the music of the people. What's more popular than pop music and what's more demotic, what is more convincingly ours. Even if we hate it, we have to admit that's what the 80s sounded like, that's what the 70s sounded like, etc. Reading your essays, I thought, hey! Dick Dale just dropped dead, and this is about to be the 25th anniversary of Pulp Fiction. You don't have to have been around in the 50s and 60s for surf guitar. You just have to have watched Pulp Fiction, and all of a sudden you know that music. You know that kind of guitar. It's so Mm -hmm. driving, it's so energetic, and it might last for a long time. I'm certainly glad people haven't entirely forgotten it, because I love Dick Dale. But it's not classical music. It established a different style of music making. And I remember seeing Scorsese movies when I was a kid. And all of a sudden, this guy starts cutting montages of atrocities to pop music. Because that's such an ironic thing to do. Isn't that so funny? Because look at society. But on the other hand, the dark side of society. And that started, I think, this attitude that we should be less earnest, more ironic, less in love with music, more aware of its cultural functions, and also of how it might conceal the sorts of things we're so curious about, like atrocity. Couldn't we have a bit of horror in our lives, in our regimen of entertainment or media consumption? And of course, since Scorsese, this has become just indelible. It is essential to us that if we see atrocities, we should also see a a nice bit of soundtrack to go along with it for ironic contradistinction. Ah. Yeah, I mean, the music is particularly in montages your editorial statement and so it is used in like essentially in like a postmodern sense as an extra narrative or commentary to lay over these events and yeah as characters become simpler and we no longer look for the same type of either jarring juxtapositions that someone like Kubrick would use when he uses classical music 
Typically what I've found is that genius directors are often like one of their geniuses is using music in an interesting way that creates like interesting juxtapositions. And so Kubrick is like the master of this and he uses classical music so famously in so many films. And, you know, you can see the same type of mixing done with someone like Tarantino, which his ear is like one of the key parts of his style. But most people aren't real stylists. They don't have any genuine voice. So they just try to choose the right color from the Pantone, like, you know, soundtrack. So if they've only heard like the six pieces of classical music, they're like, well, I guess I'll pick this one because I'm trying to go for this. I'm going for Halloween or whatever it is. And I think that that sort of insert your own emotion for scenes, you know, it pulls apart. It separates the classical music. A lot of times these themes that are like the culmination of something like O Fortuna and Carmina Burana. It's an experience out of context, where as opposed to it's the culmination of like this longer piece, they pull out the peak and then they insert that peak to sell whatever, Tostitos. I think that that is, <laughs> that sort of irony, right? It destroys the sublime. It destroys that sort of long uh, experience where you go on when you listen to a symphony or a longer piece. I got off on a tangent there, but to wrap it back uh, around to pop, an interesting example of the democratic power of pop that you pointed out, and I interestingly also wrote about, was the first Guardians of the Galaxy film. Because in that film, there's this, I guess, pseudo-Egyptian-esque, like, supervillain. At the time when I read it, I'm like, oh my god, Edward Said would have a field day with this guy, because he had all the... <laughs> there's Chris Pratt, who plays the funky, likable white guy, and then there's this sort of giant blue guy who's like a mishmash of all these sort of, like, Eastern, quote-unquote, Oriental traits, but with purple skin. And the way he defeats them, because he's undefeatable in combat, is they have a dance-off. And I forget the exact song he's playing, but Chris Pat, it's like, he's hip. He understands the times. He's not, he's ironic. And so how ironic I can do this, I can dance at the last scene, and then, you know, he can't defeat that, and so he's crushed. But that struck me as this, like, really strong example to resolve a final battle and a pop dance-off. It seemed like, yeah, that was the ultimate triumph of uh, ironic pop over sincere classical music. Yeah, what we've got, I guess, by way of sincerity is just nostalgia with pop. It's 80s music and Stranger Things, or it's 70s music and funky stuff with Guardians of the Galaxy. Of course, the audience of the movie wasn't around in the 70s to have actually experienced this stuff. It's a strange situation to be in, both an attempted retrieval of cultural memory and of collapse of history because nobody was around actually for the real 70s we just get the fake 70s it's what we've got now and in some strange way movies like this show that even our supposedly action movies are really more like musicals now we may not have Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly for that matter but we certainly have CGI that will help along with incredibly sophisticated Busby Berkeley-esque choreographies and Chris Pratt in the middle of all of it because what's more all-American than Chris Pratt? I can go along with a lot of it, but I also wonder at this stuff. How did we end with this? We used to have better music. We used to have better characterization. Emotions brought out by movies simply through the use of music. Hitchcock used to like to say things like, Mr. Herman will have something to add here. There's, (laughs) you know, he'll have his composer like Bernard Herman, somebody on that scale, who will just figure out, okay, what is he trying to bring out in this sequence? Let's help the director along. Let's help the actors along. Let's make the screenplay really come to life. 
we find it much harder to do that now for a generation or two we have tried to use popular music to use rock to use pop to get there but we ended up with pretty ironic and sort of unserious things like guardians of the galaxy an entire project as it were of modernization of music has collapsed it has failed to be middling or all-American or middle-brow in the way in which the combination of movies and, on the other hand, classical music used to be. I'm not quite sure what's going to supplant for this, but I do think that now it's obvious to us in hindsight what has happened to Hollywood and America, and we have an opportunity, as you said earlier, A lot of our problems started with TV, with turning life and our televised experience into advertising, forever selling us on the greatest, greatest thing. And that's all dying now. There's not advertising money in it and nobody can get an audience anymore. And I think that it will be possible now that we're moving from television technology to digital technology to retrieve a lot of what we had with classical music. It will domesticate our emotions in a way, in another way, educate our emotions to be more sophisticated. It really is the case that, in the case of computer games, we went from 8-bit music and, of course, 8-bit graphics, incredibly simplistic synthesizers of the 80s, to full-blown orchestras. We might be able to do that for the movies, too. Yeah, we're at the dawn of the digital era. It's an interesting media shift. I mean, I think the big thing is that digital culture, I call it meta media. You are taking all these other little bits of media and putting them in a new context. So that's, you know, Giphy's or like look at something like The Daily Show, right? That's just like, I'm going to take a couple of clips, put them in a new context and put the comment over it, and then it has like a new type of meaning. And you know, you see that for a lot of movies, like a successful movie or thing, it's something that has all of these little bits of like content that can be regurgitated in a million different ways, whether it's through memes, whether through tweets, whether through clips and all these different types of things. And so what I think hopefully is that you can see classical music remixed and used in a variety of new contexts if people are listening to it. And so that's the real question is like, because video rises more and more as like some crazy percentage of internet traffic, you're gonna see an opportunity, I think. People are gonna need music. So how can you educate people to look into classical music as, you know, in many ways, maybe one of the best ways to ennoble or deepen what you're saying? I think, yeah, you're on to something here because you like a melody, That's one of the great attractions of classical music. People had beautiful melodies. Just shazam it. (laughs) That's what we've got technology for. It will help you find out what is this. It will encourage people to find more of it. And I think we can go even beyond the culture of memes, of Mm -hmm. snippets. It really is the case that people spend a lot of their life online. That people say spend a lot of their life on YouTube or Spotify for that matter. It is therefore possible in a strange new way for classical music to be part of the soundtrack to your life. It doesn't have to be some terrifying pop thing haunting you at the mall. It could be stuff in your AirPods and it might be Brahms and it might be Beethoven and it might be Bach even if you're not a murderer actually. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think the challenge right now is for our, you know, is to recontextualize classical music and allow people to experience the melodies and the music immediately. And if they find the right way to experience it, the beauty and the kind of sophistication of it and the depth, I think will will stick 
So that's the challenge. And hopefully, you know, starting to talk about some of the ways it's uh, been misused or not misused is the wrong term. I don't like to apply moral judgment to the way art is used. The way it's been used in a particular narrow sense in cinema recently maybe can open up, discussing that can open up the pathways to look at other possible uses for the genre. Yeah, it doesn't have to be villains. We can reverse the reversal we have gone through. Hollywood as a culture went from we need to import classically educated musicians from Europe or American classically educated musicians to class up our movie making to, well, what do you mean about class up? That's evil. You have to have pop. That's more demotic. And the classing up music will be reserved for the bad guys. But now that reversal can itself be reversed. For a long period, we went through this new identification of sophistication with evil. And at this point, if you say to somebody, such and such is a villain or the villain in the movie, immediately in the mind, the picture of an unusually aristocratic, unusually intelligent mastermind, this uber brain comes up. But it wasn't always thus. Villain used to be a term of contempt. It used to be how aristocrats talked about people who lived on a villa who were peasants, mere workers of the land. That was the old age of aristocracy. In the age of democracy, we have reversed their ideas and turned the contempt for villainy on the super intelligent, super sophisticated themselves. But it is possible in certain ways to reverse that all over again now since we're not particularly interested anymore or particularly afraid anymore of aristocrats. There's not going to be a monarchist plot against America. Even something like in Die Hard, oh, these European sophisticated types with their British accents. Class and anger towards the 1% is alive and well. And that's always going to be there. And that's sort of a question of how populist filmmaking and art will always work. And what's interesting about the way classical music is used for villains is it's often used to frame it as like one personification of all the trends that we dislike about, about some sort of supervillain. So that's so many of the Bond villains are that way. You know, if we want to combat inequality, there's not someone to go punch necessarily or go have James Bond kill. It's more complicated and menacing than that. A lot of these portraits of the classical music loving villain are portraits of the villains who we wish we could convict but never do. The ones who escape, the ones who do evil things in polite words. And it's interesting. And that sort of contempt and that sort of moral depravity becomes a shorthand. Classical music becomes a shorthand for that sort of hidden menace that is lurking under the sophisticated veneer. You know, so many people at the opera, they look like they're fancy and great philanthropists, but we sense that lurking underneath that is some sort of submerged or hidden kind of depravity. And I think classical music speaks to that sort of populist paranoia and gives it this convenient form that can be attacked and defeated. And (laughs) the sophistication of classical music is useful for that. But the real question for me is how do we disentangle classical music from this sort of matrix of sort of class anxieties and paranoia and allow people to experience it for what it is, as art, first and foremost? I know what you mean from uh, Martin Scorsese's The Departed in 2007 going back to the 80s with Francis Ford Coppola, Godfather Part 3, or Brian De Palma, The Untouchables. Opera is where the villains go. But I would also say that's a thing of the past. 
because nobody thinks of Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg as opera goers. In the age of robots, villainy is going to have much more of an EDM soundtrack or something (laughs) of that character. And it's perfectly possible now to retrieve classical music for its originally ennobling intentions. I mean, Beethoven thought of himself as the composer of democracy, the man who gives voice and drama to the highest aspirations of the new age of enlightenment, something that all people could share in. And I think a lot of that can actually be retrieved, a new kind of humanism, precisely because we no longer have elites that own the local opera. We have elites that own the devices on which we live our lives. And that's a different sort of drama. That's a different sort of vulnerability for us and a different sort of superiority for them as they show up in their turtlenecks like Steve Jobs or great t-shirts like Zuckerberg. Cinema hasn't figured out how to handle that new type of villain. I mean, Hollywood's obviously always like 30 years behind. (laughs) But like, so they have not figured out how to depict that character yet. So they would just prefer depicting the type of villain they've always had. But yeah, it is interesting is that like, we will see as this becomes increased anachronistic how Hollywood responds and I hadn't thought about that way but there is opportunity to be used in uh, in another way I think this about wraps our conversation it's been rollicking fun and I hope name dropping all these movies directors and all these different sorts of attitudes to music will be helpful for our audience not least of all because it might shine a new light on all the stuff that we've grown up with or grown to love over the years And what is a better note to end on than thinking that there's some hope to our situation, that we're no longer bound by the structures and the tropes to believe that this is what evil sounds like. Evil actually sounds very different now, and that's one thing to look forward to with regard to our new robotic overlords. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be evil. That's the rule of but uh, yeah, this is a good thing. Kill all cliches and uh, listen to music. And uh, yeah, keep thinking. Thank you for joining me. It was lovely reading your essay. And let's find something to talk about again sometime soon. Sure. Uh, it was a pleasure. Let's let's do it again soon. All right. All Ciao. Bye bye.